Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin with my colleagues, John Avalon. Hola. <laughs> and Harry Enton. Shalomi, my homies. It's never going to get old. No, I'd like to not. say episode 1000, I'll still be giggling about it. <laughs> the, that's not how I giggle. <laughs> this week, we've got another Polapalooza for you. New head-to-head matchups, and you all know how much I love those, between the Democratic <laughs> top tier and President Trump. Which candidate is besting Trump in that hypothetical matchup in four out of six key battleground states? Stand by to stand by. We also have the latest numbers out of Iowa and Nevada, and the voters have spoken in a few statewide races this week. What are the lessons learned? We're going to break that all down for you. And Elizabeth Warren has finally decided to show the math when it comes to her Medicare for All plan. Do the numbers add up? And is Medicare for All what Democratic voters really want right now? We're going to get to that. First, let's get to the latest forecast, and we're going to do something different this week. I know. Buckle up. Hold on. Um, Harry, you're looking at these wonderful head-to-head matchups between the 2020 Democratic candidates and President Trump in six key battleground states. What do you see? Yes. Yes, ma'am. So essentially the uh, New York Times, Siena College. Aye, aye. Aye, 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 Captain. That's right. Uh, (laughs) The New York Times, Siena College basically polled across six battleground states, the six closest states that Trump won in 2016. Democrats will obviously need to carry a number of those in order to win in 2020. They are Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And when you aggregate those across those states, what you find among likely voters is a very close race. So Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Biden leads by an average of a point. Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. Trump leads by a point. Uh, Elizabeth Warren versus Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren trails the president of the United States. The president leads across those six states by three points. Now, we, of course, can break it down into some individual states. And what we generally see there is in Michigan, we see uh, Joe Biden leading Donald Trump by one point. Bernie Sanders leading Donald Trump by three points. Elizabeth Warren down by four points. How about Pennsylvania? What do we see there? Joe Biden up by a point over the president. Bernie Sanders down by a point to the president. Elizabeth Warren down by two points to the president. And in Wisconsin, what do we see? We see Joe Biden up by two points. Bernie Sanders tied with the president. Elizabeth Warren down two points. And just to sum it up, they also polled in the south. So those were the northern battlegrounds. Here are the south and west battlegrounds. In Arizona, Joe Biden up by two points over Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders down by four points to Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren tied. How about in Florida? What do we see there? Well, again, we see Joe Biden doing better than Elizabeth Warren. Joe Biden up by two points. Bernie Sanders down by two points to the president. Warren down by four points. And in North Carolina, they all trail the president of the United States. Joe Biden down by two. 
Sanders and Warren down by four. But if I were basically to sum up across them, what I think is rather important is we consistently see the president quite competitive with the Democrats. And we also see that Elizabeth Warren consistently is polling behind Joe Biden in these key battleground states. So a couple quick points of clarification for me here. First of all, the overall trend is real clear. Biden is by far the most competitive, but this is still within a tight margin. Warren is the least competitive among these top four. Question is, what's the margin error here when you're doing likely? Because a lot of polls look at registered. Because that Biden margin in a state like Pennsylvania, say, where Donald Trump's deeply underwater by double digits in his popularity, that gap itself is really surprising. I think in general, the the difference of the relevant difference here of registered voters to likely voters, I think, is important throughout anything we're talking about. Thank you. What's the point? Like, why don't you always only care about likely voters? Correct. Because they're the ones that are, I don't know, maybe like more likely to vote. <laughs> I, I would say that people, if, if I was arguing on behalf of registered voter polls, <laughs> um, if, if I was employed by that lobby, what I would say is we don't necessarily know yet who is going to be a likely voter. That is, we're still a year out. Obviously, some people who might be seen as being unlikely voters at this time, for whatever reason, become likely voters down the road. I'll also note that the numbers, at least among between registered voters and likely voters in these polls, are not that great. The registered voter numbers tend to perhaps be a little bit more uh, pro-democratic, but you would still have competitive races if you were to look at the registered voter numbers uh, across these uh, across these different states. But um, the gap between likely and registered, I mean, Biden's beating Trump by three in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, one among um, registered, among, among registered, one among likely. So. You know, is that simply a Democratic bias? And also, who at this point, given the unbelievable turnout we've seen, even in just the local elections this week, and we'll get to that later, if you're not saying you're a likely voter now, I'm not sure if there's ever an election where you're going to cross that threshold. Yes, you are. It's still a year out. It's 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 still... still. You don't have... People have feelings. They, I mean, turnout was like I, we double all have what we had in Kentucky. Yeah. But I mean, it was less insane. in Mississippi. Or was it, it, was, it wasn't as high in Mississippi, I should say. I mean, look, uh, it, you do overstate in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm sorry, in Wisconsin, it's a two-point Biden margin among uh, likely voters, and it's a three-point margin among registered. But the general sort of gist of you are seeing uh, a shift, a slight bit of more Republican leaning among likely voters. Uh, Can look, I still just yes. make the case that head-to-head still don't matter to me? I, I, they still don't matter to me. So even in these, basis? even in these battleground states, because no one has become the nominee yet. I think that fundamental fact fundamentally changes us. Here's what I will note: If you were to look at polls at this point, about a year out, and you were to basically look all the way back since the 40s, yeah, I would agree with you. The polls at this point are not predictive because we don't have nominees yet. I will say, however, in the last few cycles. They have been more predictive at this point in 2012 and 2016. And here's why I fundamentally disagree with you, Kate. Um, There are two important reasons. One, I think the break – national head-to-heads are meaningless as we know. And and I think there's still too much of a gravitational pull towards covering national polls. We're talking about swing states. Now you're getting something we can use. Mm -hmm. And what this shows um, is that there is a competitive difference between the top-tier Democrats. And the centrist Dem, represented by Joe Biden here, does a lot better than Elizabeth Warren for whatever reason, or decisively better. 
uh, pretty much across the board. Right. So wait, wait, wait. I, I, th- I yes. think this is. We, I want to move on, but really quick, you were listing out these are all the states that Trump won to help his electoral victory. Yes. In 2016, um, how many does how many does the Democratic nominee, if if all holds the same, and these are the only things that would change? And what is it, half? So you Dem would, needs to flip half of these. And, to take well, it depends which one, right? But if you if you were to flip Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, right. that would be enough. You could substitute. Does that outweigh, outweigh Florida? In Arizona? Uh, um, well, there's certainly – I think they're probably going to be more to the left. But, or you could do Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. You know, you could you – know, you can include Florida and North Carolina and then in the state. You can get there through different sort of methods, but probably about half. Yeah. It tends to be you probably – whoever wins half of these states. Two other quick things I'll note. Theoretically, they both could win half. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Everyone can win. Um, the American people win by voting. Two other things I'll quickly note. Uh, Texas was not pulled among these states. I think that's a big question mark. You know, obviously, we know O'Rourke came rather close to Ted oh my Cruz God, in 2000. You're still buying into Texas is going to. Okay, no, continue. I'm just saying I want to know. I'm not that. getting into that right now. And nationally, in our own poll last month, what we saw was that among those who had an opinion of both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, Joe Biden was better liked by four points. And among non-potential Democratic primary voters, those perhaps in the center of the electorate or Republicans you might want to reach out to, Joe Biden was better liked, had a net favorability rating of over 10 points higher than Elizabeth The Warren. takeaway here, folks, is this is very competitive. Still, so we're switching gears. I know you're excited. Yeah. To we're switching gears. Um, we are moving now. Let's go to the fact that on Friday, after dodging the question for months and in every debate so far, Senator Elizabeth Warren finally laid out how she wants to pay for her Medicare for All plan. It is over $20 trillion, which is $10 trillion less than basically most everyone else thinks it would cost over 10 years. But how would she pay for it? Um, More taxes on the super rich, but also changes to capital gains taxes, which is not always paid for by only the super rich. Cutting payments to doctors, new tax revenue brought in from comprehensive immigration reform. And with all of that, she promises that she will not be raising taxes on the middle class. Let me play how she puts it. We can have Medicare for all without raising taxes one cent on middle class families. And it's all fully paid for by asking the top one percent and giant corporations to pay a fair share. So with that, just as quickly, many of the other Democrats running, they piled on. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult way to get there, what she's talking about. And the idea that she can get the cost down to $20 trillion is, uh, I don't know, I mean, look, even $20 trillion, where she get the money? We have a better way, which is a 7.5% payroll tax, which is far more, I think, progressive. There are other ways to solve these problems, uh, including what I'm putting forward on health care that gets a job done for a lot less money and respects the wishes of the American people who want to have a choice. So there's that. So who is Warren's plan appealing to? And is this what the primary is going to turn on? John Avlin, what do you think of just first of all, what do you think of her rollout of this explanation? Look, this is a person whose signature of her campaign and God bless her, someone who ran policy on a presidential once has been to say, I've got a plan for that. And in a time when the number one issue for Democratic voters is health care, the last thing she bothered to spell out was health care after she was <laughs> on defense about it because people were pointing out the obvious that it's the thing she didn't have a plan for. Um, and look, it is a bit of a kitchen sink in how you pay for it. Um, it's I, I personally even have questions about the 
increase taxing on people's uh, people's wages, whether that'll translate to, in effect, an in tax increase on the middle class. It's a small piece of the overall uh, puzzle. But I mean, this is broad brush stuff, and it's not even particularly popular with Democratic Party voters, let alone the nation at large. Okay, so get to it, Harry. Where is Medicare for? Where's where's yeah. the numbers on I, Medicare? I, I for think right this now? is rather interesting. And John hint, 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 well, he didn't just hint at it; he basically said it. So, if you were essentially to ask, as the Kaiser Family Foundation polling did, which would you prefer: building on the existing Affordable Care Act or replacing the Affordable Care Act with a national Medicare for All plan? What do we see? We see that building on Obamacare, this is among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, building on the Affordable Care Act beats replacing the Affordable Care Act with a national Medicare for all plan by a 55 percent to 40 percent margin. So I think that's one part of it. Obamacare is more popular building on it among Democrats and among the voters at large. What we know in poll after poll after poll, Medicare for all, when you say that you're going to replace private insurance, only about 40 percent of the American public supports it. A majority are against it versus the public option, which is being um, basically put out there by Biden and Buttigieg. That has majority support. So this, to me, is a very interesting thing for Warren, who's risen so far, whether this could, in fact, not necessarily be good news. And, and look, her. I think she's hit a little bit of wind shear since she really seemed to have the big momentum in the last couple of weeks. Biden's had a couple of very unexpected good polls in his favor. And I, I think it's not unrelated to these sorts of questions. And if you look at the history of healthcare in America, and this has been a long fight for like, you know, 70 years, one of the constant themes you see is the perfect versus the good. And when the perfect is made the enemy of the good, nobody tends to win. Um, and we've seen it over and over again. So, you know, the Medicare for all option, which, you know, critics say will be the camel under the tent, you know, mm-hmm. that brings people to single payer. Ultimately, that kind of a gradualist program that people opt into is politically infinitely easier to swallow than a presidential candidate saying coming in and saying, oh, I really am going to get rid of all private industry related to the insurance industry. It may or may not be the best ultimate outcome. I think, frankly, a lot more needs to be done to have more simplicity in the existing system as well um, that I think would, would assuage a lot of folks. But but this plan, credit for putting out the details finally. Absolutely. And and she's saying the math can work and it's probably a better plan than, than, than Sanders in, in a lot of ways. But um, I think it's a real electoral liability. I also think there's a to just steal steal your steal your brand for a second. John. <laughs> um, there's a real reality check on one part of this that I just cannot get off of. She is banking on comprehensive immigration reform to pass and be approved by her, I guess you would assume, before being able to cover the full cost of this. Comprehensive immigration reform has been tried has been tried for and failed for decades. An effort was passed under Reagan, Immigration Reform and Control Act of 86. It wasn't enough. Under Bush, they tried again in 2007. Comprehensive Immigration Reform Act of 2007. It did not pass Congress. And it definitely didn't happen under Obama. It's obviously not happening under Trump. But Elizabeth Warren, for some reason, is banking on it to get $400 billion to cover the cost of Medicare for all. So with that, I mean, so she is this her acknowledging that she is not going to be paying for this thing because <laughs> you're not getting comprehensive immigration reform. I, 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 I'll, just, I'll push back on that one. Um, <clears throat> first of all, comprehensive immigration reform passed the Senate under Obama. The House balked on it after Eric Cantor lost his primary. Boehner wanted Almost to back up. Almost isn't 
Everybody law. knows with the components that would go into it. And what's interesting to me is that what she's, one of the ways she's saying she's going to pay for it is by implementing E-Verify, which is actually typically something um, that, that conservatives argue for uh, and that businesses, um, you know, some advocate for and some push back on if they're exploiting uh, undocumented labor. Um, I agree it sets up a really high hurdle. But look, Donald like the Trump. the highest hurdle. Don, it's not the highest hurdle. Donald Trump could do immigration reform tomorrow if he wanted to pull a Nixon in China. He just doesn't want to take the political issue off the table. Um, he No. It's, I, I stand firm. I am right. I know I am if, right. If, he, if Donald Trump picked up Lindsey Graham's Gang of Eight plan, he could pass it um, in, in the Senate. Yeah, and he wouldn't. And he wouldn't. And, and he, he would not. But that's, he would not, purely that's political cynicism, I'm not, not even lack t- of for, ability to pass Yeah, but... Forget about that. She's, but she can't pay. She is saying, first, I have to fight this fight and get Congress to come together before we're going to actually get Medicare for all. So it's essentially you're at least going to be waiting until my second term before we get Medicare for all because there's no way the first whatever, thing I'm going to do is like Warren's the toxic second... grenade that is comprehensive <laughs> immigration reform in America today. That's man. I want what you're smoking. Warren's second term policy fantasia. That's some it just kind of. I don't know. It just kind of came out. Stuff. Anyway, okay, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna go off to Iowa, and Nevada now, friends, and we'll also recap some election day results, including a few surprising victories for Democrats and what they might mean heading into 2020. That's next. back, friends. In a new Siena College New York Times poll of likely Iowa Democratic caucus scores, it does appear that the first in the nation contest is a close race. And there is a new top tier with Elizabeth Warren at 22 percent, Bernie Sanders at 19 percent, Buttigieg at 18 and Joe Biden sitting at 17 right now. Harry, explain. I mean, look, this is a crowd of top tier. And when this poll came out, I was just like messy, 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 messy. Uh, the average of polls looks fairly similar. Maybe Biden's a little bit higher and Sanders and Buttigieg are a little bit lower. But the fact is, is that this is a four-way race in Iowa at this point. Uh, and if you were to, you know, if this were the polling literally on the eve of the caucuses, I would say this race is far too close to call. Anyone could win it. Uh, and if you look back sort of over time and what you see is basically I went back since 2000 and looked at the front runners at this particular point in Iowa where the front runner was polling. Elizabeth Warren's 22 percent is the weakest of any front runner since at least 2000. And all of the front runners who were polling, say, below the basically 50 percent mark, all of them went on to lose the caucuses and went on to lose the nomination. So well, she's up. Yes, she is up um, or certainly – I don't know if I'd say she's leading, but she's certainly right there. But that is by no means a guarantee that she'll win the caucuses or win the nomination. You know, what's interesting to me is obviously she has a great ground game there and a lot of enthusiasm. But Bernie Sanders was performing much better four years ago in Iowa than he is today. Buttigieg seems to have a very strong core of support. This is his standout state. It's a place where his message is really resonating. And Biden, of course, has taken a lot of heat for not organizing the state as effectively as a typical front runner should. Um, I agree. Even though it's 100 days out, this is just messiness that you can't project too much on. Pretty much everyone's within the margin of error. Makes but it exciting, though. It Yay! does. But you can't you can basically say it's a state where Warren and Buttigieg are outperforming and Certainly Sanders Buttigieg. and Biden are underperforming. But it's also uh, yeah. interesting that they're the 
I find it also fascinating that the, you think they're overperforming, you said, Harry? No, what I was – what I'm saying is that Buttigieg is overperforming in Iowa. There's no doubt about that and that's because Buttigieg tends to outperform wherever there aren't any non-white voters and if you've ever been to Iowa or looked at the census there – White voters make up the vast, 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 vast majority um, of voters in that state, depending, you know, is it 85, 90, whatever among the Democratic caucus electorate. Um, Warren's about where she is nationally, you know, in the low 20s. It just so happens that that's good enough to maybe lead the pack if you were looking at the averages, although barely leading, uh, because Biden is essentially doing considerably worse in Iowa than he's doing nationally. He's doing about 10 points worse in Iowa than he's doing nationally. And, and that's in part because there aren't any non-white voters in the state. But when you look at um, the have you made your mind ups um, in this poll, it still could be persuaded to caucus for a different candidate is still 65 percent. I mean, I don't think it, that's really high. Mm-hmm. Two, two thirds and more more of Warren supporters, uh, about three quarters say that among her own supporters. And isn't she still the top second choice? Right. I and she's still the, she's still the top second choice, whatever the heck that means. I mean, you know, look. Uh, It only means something in Iowa. It only means, you know, obviously this – let me just – and on this, I will say this is going to be the first year in which raw vote totals, initial first preferences will be released from Iowa. I think it is very, very possible looking at these numbers right now that you could have one person who wins the raw vote in Iowa, the initial first choice, and then a second person – who wins when they reallocate them to their second choices and then you have the delicate equivalents and how the media is going to handle that, I don't really know. So that's the state of play in the Hawkeye State, but things look quite different in Nevada. A new poll by the Nevada Independent shows Biden with a 10-point lead over Warren and Sanders Is this an anomaly? (laughs) No, I don't think it's an anomaly. Uh, You know, Mark Bellman, who did that poll for that group, uh, it's probably one of the best polls we've actually gotten out of Nevada so far. And again, look, a state that has non-white voters in it who make up more than just a tiny percentage of the electorate and Joe Biden leads. Uh, That should not be too much of a surprise. I'd also note that the Nevada polls look a lot like the uh, national polls, which shouldn't be too surprising because Nevada tends to line up pretty well with the demographics nationwide, uh, at least on the Democratic side of the ledger. Uh, So this is good news for Biden. It's certainly not bad news. Uh, I think the large question that a lot of us have is what happens to those numbers if Biden were to lose in both Iowa and New Hampshire. I think if he wins, it's pretty clear he has a straight path to the nomination. But if he loses, will those numbers decrease in Nevada and then in South Carolina? And and what's just interesting is, you know, having covered these races as we all have before, you know, Iowa goes directly to uh, New Hampshire and you can always feel the impact of Iowa on New Hampshire. The impact of New Hampshire on Nevada and South Carolina is I a mean, little bit more of a bank Nevada. shot. I love you so much. It is Thank Nevada. You. Did I say it again? You yes. did. Nevada. Yes, yes, Nevada. you did. I love you. you know, Continue. This, this is a this is an issue I struggle with. Apparently, I say it's it your one imperfection. Nevada. Thank you. Your singular. Thank voice. you. Keep going. Um, Nevada. So, um, it, you know, the, but the impact of New Hampshire on Nevada and South Carolina is much more of a bank shot. Um, so momentum obviously matters in these races, but it's such a different kind of electorate, and it is not catered to as exclusively as the first two, that it could just be, well, I'm skeptical of firewalls for very good reasons um, <laughs> and personal reasons, um, that, that, that those numbers are strong enough to withstand him not coming in first in any of the first two states. I mean, but you also, you have, when you look at the electorate, 
You also have Buttigieg at 7 percent. Well, 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 well. There it is, a state that actually has a substantial portion of non-white voters and Buttigieg is going nowhere. This fits the storyline. Can Buttigieg actually break out among people of color? Um, And I'm just not sure about that. One thing I will note, you know, historically speaking, the effects of Iowa and New Hampshire have been tremendous on the nomination process. Uh, Sequential primaries are a big deal. Last time around, not really in 2016. If there were some, there have been some studies that have been done that the polling actually stayed pretty consistent in Nevada and South Carolina after Iowa and New Hampshire, despite the fact that Clinton very much underperformed there. And one of the questions that I have is it's, you know, one thing if, you know, um, Biden is doing well in Nevada and South Carolina just for whatever reason, it's name recognition or whatever. But it could be because of the unique demographics that are going on in those states, particularly South Carolina, but Nevada as well. And it may just be that Nevada and South Carolina be like, yeah, okay, the white folks had their say in uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and now uh, states that actually look a lot more like the Democratic electorate will have their say, and we're going to stick with Biden. I don't know the answer to that, but it is something to note. Well, and you also, so you have Nevada, the Democratic caucus there is February 22nd, and South Carolina is right after that. So- Nevada and there's like, are, does Nevada feed into South Carolina? Does South Car- does the momentum come out of Nevada into South Carolina? I, I, I mean, we have a very small sample size, so it's difficult right. to say. I mean, this is part of the problem, right? When we're trying to diagnose what's going to happen in a Democratic primary. But it's just that, so fun. Right, it is. We know Iowa and New Hampshire, I, how those impact, but we don't yeah, know later I, down the road. I can tell you from a South Carolina perspective, people aren't focused on what happened in Nevada right. as much. Nevada. Yeah. As much. You did it. See? Nevada. High five. Working on it. Boom. Working let's on stop it. there because that's a win. Yep. Uh, let's turn to a different set of numbers at the moment. Tuesday was election day for some. A good night for Democrats. Not so good for Republicans. You have Democrat Andy Bashir, who declared victory over incumbent Republican Governor Matt Bevin in Kentucky, something we were watching very closely. Although we do need to note that Bevin at the moment of this taping has not conceded, we will say. Neither have I. You never concede. <laughs> in Virginia, Democrats flipped both the House, state House and state Senate, giving the party full control of state government there for the first time in 25 years. And in Mississippi, a win for Republicans, where they held on to the governor's office with Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves beating the Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood. There's the preamble. What are the lessons? Uh, what are the lessons? <laughs> what? Um, Matt Bevin was a uniquely unpopular candidate in Kentucky. The rest of the Republicans uh, did quite well there. Who ran statewide? They all won. Uh, but every fact, other every statewide o- race, every other statewide race. But Donald Trump's popularity in that state was not enough to carry Bevin. I think that's notable. I also think the map is notable of how um, Bashir put the victory together. He was able to do so by running up the score with high turnout in the urban areas in Louisville and Lexington. Uh, importantly, he ran. He actually won a few of the uh, counties that are right on the Cincinnati border, the Cincinnati suburbs, which traditionally have been quite red territory. And more than that, he held on to a number of counties in coal country, which Donald Trump had won by anywhere between, say, 40 and 55 points. He managed to basically win there, which Mm. was shocking. Unique situation, very interesting. But the suburban trend we saw across the board, we saw it in Virginia. We saw it in local elections in Pennsylvania and New York. Republicans have a suburban problem, and it's not clear that they know how to solve it. That's right. The the headline from 2018 through to 2019 is, it's the suburbs, stupid. (laughs) We get very focused on these red state, blue state divides. The real divides in American politics are urban and rural. So it makes sense that the swing is the suburbs. And since Trump came about, 
you know, Republicans have been getting housed, even in the South. This race in Kentucky had a lot to do, obviously, with name ID uh, for Bashir, but that that trend is really significant. The turnout, by the way, was massive. And the Virginia flip, you know, to, to, to unified control is a big deal as well, given that it was razor thin last time. Um, you know, Fox News' uh, uh, Chiron I got a, I just got a huge kick out of was Republicans with five other races in Kentucky. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yes. They just, they, they, just, they just flipped it. Um, and, and uh, you know, you want to give, you know, due credit uh, for, for the down ballot. But yeah, I mean, it's not like Democrats are like, yes, now we're going to win Kentucky in 2020. <clears throat> no, but, but, I mean, you know, it, it's a reminder that the right kind of Democratic candidate can win even in Kentucky. Especially if you're facing the wrong type of Republican. Exactly. Yeah, and a bad Republican and candidate bad re- can lose where Donald Trump has a 30-point advantage. Is that a 30-point advantage? Uh, uh, the, the, you know, looking ahead to 2020, one other thing I'll note is in the Virginia House of Delegates uh, races there, if you look at the popular vote, Democrats won that by nine. That matches how they did in 2017. And, of course, that presaged uh, Democrats winning the House vote by nine, the popular vote in 2018. So it'll be interesting to see how much this presages um, what goes on in 2020, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, and is there a message here? Or is there any kind of soul searching being done amongst Republican candidates looking at the next year of how closely you tether yourself to President Trump um, to get you over the finish line? Obviously, it depends on if you're in a rural district, It doesn't. then that's obviously fine. But you saw, and Trump tried really hard here, to help Bevan get over the finish line, mm-hmm. I think his campaign even said Trump couldn't couldn't drag him over the finish line was the terminology they used in their statement. But there's there's got to be some questions in that. We'll see though, as we like to say. Wait, before we go, I got to give a one shout out. Please do. City of New York passed ranked choice voting by seventy three percent. What is that? That is wonky, but super important because if you hate polarization and hyperpartisanship, ranked choice voting is one of those key election reforms. Basically, what it allows folks to do is to rank the candidates they like, and what uh, the impact that has is it means that candidates have shown that they are less likely to attack each other in really vicious ways because they want to win over the other person's support for the second round of the ranked choice. So it saves money, but more importantly, it changes the incentive structure. Is that like a caucus? No. no, no. So essentially what it, what it essentially means is you rank your candidates. If anyone wins a majority on the first round, they win. If they don't, then the candidate who got the least amount of votes, you reallocate their votes to their second choice and you keep oh. going on with that process. But you're saying that it impacts it impacts not just voting. It impacts how candidates treat their Absolutely, campaigns. Absolutely, because they don't want to alienate other people's supporters. So, for Ooh. example, in Maine, where it was tried a year ago, you actually had two candidates do a campaign ad together saying, Look, we have some disagreements, but we actually think we're both like positive forces. And if you don't vote for one of us at the top, consider the other for the second. So think about really important. Stop. Again, you can be cynical about this stuff, but if you think that polarization, hyperpartisanship is hurting the country, which I do, this is a concrete way to address it. Fascinating. Yes. I'm not even going to let Harry say anything because I like Nerd. this. I like this where we're editing this today. Thank you, Harry. We're going to edit you out today. <laughs> um, that does it for us today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, leave us a rating or a comment, please. And all the while, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Ablon. 
And, and I'm at Forecaster Enten, E-N-T-E-N. You know, my last name is actually more confusing to spell. So maybe you I should don't spell, spell it out. Why should, why should I change my way? Because maybe our it. listeners are very intelligent. <laughs> Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and David Toledo. We'll see you back here next time on The Forecast Best. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.